All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. He has risen. That is right, man. That is why we are here this morning. My name is Ernie. I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time here, we, we are so glad that you are here. We are ordinary people transformed by the mercy of God. We are no one special, but we serve a very special God, and we are excited to make much of him this morning. And I am excited for us to talk about monumental moments because Sunday, Easter Sunday, is a monumental moment, all right? It's not all about Easter eggs, even though we're going to chase some of those. It's not about bunnies. I have no idea what those things have to do with Christianity or Easter, but they're there, and uh, we'll just, the kids love chocolate, so we'll have some of that afterwards, uh, but it has nothing to do with Easter whatsoever because Easter is an absolutely monumental moment. And I don't know how many of those moments you have in your life or if you really understand what that term means. A monumental moment is something that when it, when it happens to you, it absolutely transforms and changes everything about you. Like, it, it demands, the moment is so great, it demands such a response that something has to change within you. You know, I've had several of these in my life. The first one I remember is when I was in a junior in high school, and I played football. I loved football, but I wasn't very good at it, or I was very average at it. And I had a desire, it was junior year of the spring, I was like, hey, I want to be one of the leaders of our football team, so spring practice. First day of practice, I get ready, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out to practice first, and I'm going to be in the first line. Our team now, this is, if you can imagine this, our team would get in 10 lines and would count out the lines. The leaders were all at the front line, and the ultimate leader was at line one. Well, no one would ever put me at line one because I was very average at football, but I wanted to be at line one, so I went and did it. I went and stood at line one, and it was the first practice, and I went to set the tone as the new senior, and I was like, all right, guys, you ready? We have this pump-up talk, like, this is the first day that we're going to take the first steps to winning district. You guys ready? Let's go. Let's count these lines out. I go, one, and my voice just cracks. I'm 17. My voice cracks right there. Everyone is laughing at me. My coach is doubled over. His whistle is out of his mouth because he's belly laughing so hard. I think one guy even went to a knee because he was laughing so hard. Needless to say, I was never going to be in line one at the front of that line ever again for the rest of my life. But a more serious moment of like a monumental moment is like when me and my wife got married. You know, we've been married 12 years. All right, a couple of days ago, about a week ago, I made 12 years that we've been married. And on that day that I stood before God and man and made a promise that I was going to be with this person for the rest of my life, that was a monumental moment because it required a response out of me to be completely different than what I was. Because before it was all about what I wanted, what I wanted to do, and now it's what we want to do and what we want to be about. That's a major change. Our, the second one that I could think of that was really a monumental moment was when our first child was born. Because I looked at my son, who's now nine, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's this human I'm responsible for. This is going to change everything about my life. And some of you parents know that are in the room. Like, did it not change? You didn't just lose sleep, right? You lost years of life because of them, you know? I'm, only ha- I'm not even halfway through this thing, and I'm losing hair, all right? It's migrating to my back. It's crazy. All right, too much information. But I'm telling you, it, when you have kids, it changes everything. It's a monumental experience. And this morning, we're going to talk about a monumental experience that, that is not just for you personally, but for the whole world. And it's the kind of experience that requires a response. It can't be left without a response. And it's the empty tomb 
of Jesus Christ. That on this day, we don't celebrate bunnies, we don't celebrate you know, Easter eggs. Those things are fun and they're good festivities. But the point of what we're celebrating is that there's an empty tomb and the Son of God was raised from death to life. And because of that, we can have life in his name. And it changes everything about us and our world. And so I want to take some time for us to look at Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. You can grab it. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours to keep. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at 12 verses that talk about the moment that changed everything. And I want to examine it. And, so, and the question I want to deal with is, what does it change about your life? What is the response that needs to happen in your life because of this absolute monumental moment? But before we do that, I'm going to pray, okay? Uh, let me pray right now. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to make much of you. And Lord, I ask as we celebrate, make much of this moment, as we look and examine this story, that you would make very clear to us what our first step, our first response the most amazing thing that has ever happened in our lives, and that we would be transformed and changed because of it. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much that you didn't stay in the grave, but now you are, you are alive and working still today in us and in our world, and that we trust you and we love you, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. Okay, verse one, it says this, but on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so let me explain what's happening because it feels like you're jumping into the middle of the story. And if you were with us Friday, you've heard a little bit about that, but we're gonna kind of recap it for a second. Okay, These, there's, this story starts with three women that are going to a tomb, okay, on Easter Sunday, all right? It wasn't Easter Sunday then, it's Easter Sunday now. I don't know what your Easter plans are, but I promise you you're not going to a graveyard, okay? So this is not a, a fun part of the story. It's not a good thing that's happened. In fact, what these people have seen, what these women have seen in these 12 followers that were following Jesus is they have just watched their entire future and hope just be destroyed, all right? They're not just going to a grave to mourn the death of a friend, but if you know, they were following Jesus for three years, and their expectation upon Jesus was that he would be a political leader that would overthrow the Romans who are, who are, who are, who are holding captive the people of Israel. They have an occupation of Israel. And for as long as these three women and these 12 disciples and any Jew could ever remember being alive, the, the, the Romans ruled their people. And they longed for the day that they would be free from occupation of the Romans. They longed for the day that they would be their own country. And they remembered historically how many times they had been conquered and how God would raise up a person that was holy and good and that feared the Lord and God would use that person in tremendous ways to free the people of Israel from different people like the Syrians or the Babylonians or, or even the Philistines, like just over and over and over again. And they had hoped that Jesus was going to be that political leader. They had hoped that that was gonna happen. But then what they just saw three days before is that all of their hopes was beaten and crucified and buried. They're sitting at a moment of complete hopelessness. They're completely devastated at this moment. Maybe that's where some of you are right now because you've placed your hope in something and you've watched it come crashing down in your life. You know, you had hopes of being pregnant or being married. Or maybe it's just you heard word cancer in your family or divorce. 
There's a picture that you had that you hoped for in your life in this last year, and it's just come crashing down. Maybe it was getting that job that you knew if you just got that job and this got lined up, everything would be great for you. And it didn't happen. Maybe you just turn on the news. And you just start seeing stuff about Russia and Ukraine and World War III and Korea. You start seeing people there's like mass shootings. And, 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 and you really find a lot of comfort in, in, in being safe in the place that you are. But the world doesn't seem safe. It doesn't seem comfortable. It seems like it's just burning up around you. And you're losing hope. If that's you, you are exactly where these people are right now. You're exactly where they are but you don't have to get far into the story that you see something begin to happen. Look at verse two again. It says this, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. See, here's the part, guys. If you're not a Christian, here's the part of the story where you need to start asking questions. Because history shows us both Christian historians and non-Christian historians will agree upon two things. One that there was a person named Jesus that lived, and he had a great following. Two, that he was killed by the Romans, he was buried, and then three days later, there was an empty tomb. And if you're not a, question, if you're not a Christian, you need to ask the question, what happened to the body? How did this happen? What does that mean? See, if we keep reading, we're going to hear what happened. In verse 4, it says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. I love that description. Like, in the Greek, it means, like, like gleaming like lightning, but it, so we're not thinking about guys in sequence outfits here, okay? These aren't dudes in just, like, shiny clothes, all right? These are supernatural. These are angels. In fact, we can even see in verse 5 how they respond. They say, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Like, you don't do that from sequence clothes. I, even if you're a fashion model, excuse me, I might say this, you're not going to do that, okay? Like, if you're a fashion major, it's not, no. But it's, this is something different, and these men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And I think that's a very profound question that we have to deal with. Like it describes us to a T, does it not? The thing that you had placed your hope in to make 2020 a great year or 2021 or whatever, the last five years a great year, all of a sudden came crumbling down. And for some reason, we're still seeking life in that thing. Okay, it wasn't that guy, but maybe it's this guy. It wasn't that job, but maybe it's this job. It wasn't that, you know, I got this pay raise, but it wasn't enough. And, we, and let me tell you something, guys. There's a God-shaped hole in your, in your soul that you are trying to fill with things that can't give life. And you believe the lie that more of what does not satisfy will somehow satisfy. You believe the lie. If you just had, if you just got to this status in life, if you just had this group of friends, if you just had this job, if you just had this thing, if you just had a little bit more of what you had, if you're just almost there, then you'd be satisfied. We don't have to look very far to see that's not true. I mean, look, look at the wealthiest men in the world. When is it enough? It's never enough. The richest man that ever lived, Rockefeller, when they asked him, how much more money do you need? He said, more. More. Look at celebrities. They have all the attention of the entire world. But yet they're still doing goofy things on social media to get more attention. It's always more. It's more. You can't fill that void because that thing was never meant to satisfy. 
It was never meant to bring life. See, some of us, if we want life, the world loves to talk about life, live out life. And a life they talk about, it looks good on advertisements and videos, but where it leads you to is alcoholism, where it leads you to is broken families, where it leads you to is regret, where it leads you to is a place that you never want to be. Because the world doesn't know life. Because it's always looking for life in in places that are dead. And these angels are looking at these women and saying, why are you here? Why are you looking for the living in a place of death? And then they continue and say, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Now, remember where these women are. They're at a place of complete hopelessness. They had a vision for Jesus that was too small. They had a vision that he may, he may take them out of the captivity of the Romans. It was too small. And his death squashed that for them. But Jesus had a greater vision for their life than, he, than they had for themselves. And that is true about you this morning. That many of you have too small of a vision of Jesus that maybe if he could just help your relationship, maybe he could just help you get a great job. But here the angel is revealing there's a greater story at hand. And the best words in this Bible is he is not here. He's saying to him, your dreams aren't dead. Your future isn't over. You're not condemned to seek life and things that are dead. You can stop trying to be satisfied by things that don't satisfy. You can stop chasing your tail because he is not here. They are the best words because he has risen. See, and here's the amazing thing about this. The resurrection wasn't God's plan B. Like, it was like, oh, that didn't work. Well, I guess we'll just raise him from the dead. Because the very next word the angel said, look at what he says. Remember how he told you. And he did. You could see in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, where Jesus says this. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And Jesus said this all throughout the scripture. In fact, he said even crazier things. And in, in, in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection of life. Whomever believes in me, though he die, he shall not live. He shall, yet, he, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in, in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And it wasn't just Jesus saying these things. If you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. Like, I just want to look at a couple of verses in in Isaiah 53. We're going to pull them up on the screen in which they're going to describe exactly what's going to happen to the Messiah. Written hundreds of years before Jesus even stepped foot on the planet, before they even knew what crucifixion was. I mean, if you just look at verse 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. In his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. Verse 9. And they made a grave with him with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 12, I'm just cherry picking some of these. But if you read through that whole chapter, it's insane. Because he poured out his soul to death, it was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
There are hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that point to Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of God, over and over and over again, and many of the things completely out of his control at that moment. And the, and the resurrection, guys, stands as the ultimate proof of who Jesus was. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the hope that we have in a world that's falling apart and chasing its own tail. Is that who Jesus is changes everything. And I want to explain it. I want to take a few minutes and really explain this. So I'm a visual person. I got some pictures I want to put up there. I want to kind of explain the meta-narrative of what it means to follow God, what it means to be in a relationship with God, and what the gospel is. I want to take a big picture. So we're going to take a few minutes and do that. And here's the first thing you need to understand about following God. Ready for this? All right, first slide. Man and God, God made man to be in a relationship with us, with him. That he made us to be in a relationship with him. That he is our creator. It says in Genesis that he made him, he made us in his own image that we would be in a relationship with him. But something happened, all right? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what the word sin means? It's a word we don't use regularly. It's a word like, you don't ever go, you sinned against me. But it means that you've broken a promise. You didn't meet a standard, that God has a standard and none of us meet it. And we all do the wrong things. And you know how you know that's true? Because there's something you've done that you won't even tell your parents. You don't even want your spouse to know about. There's stuff in your life that if it got put up on the screen, you would run out of here and never come back to this stage. That's what God has created within you, a conscience to know that there's something, you've broken a law. And when we sin, there's consequence to that. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about the gift in a minute, but that word wage is something you earn. I'll work for you for 10 hours, for $10 an hour, you owe me a wage of 100 bucks. See, what the Bible tells us is that we've all broken relationship with God because we've all lied, we've all done something that's broken his law, we've all rebelled against him, and because of that, we're eternally separated from him, and we're, and we're guilty, we're deserving of death, we're traitors to God, we're traitors to our creator. And Hebrews 9.27 tells us this, that just as we can be sure that man will die, just as a point for man to die once, also comes judgment. So just as sure as we can that one day every single one of us will die, no one gets out of life alive. We're all going to come under judgment. This is a terrible picture. It's a horrible picture. But it's true. And we have to realize how horrible it is to understand how good God is. That God didn't sin against us, we sinned against him. We're the ones that said, we don't want anything to do with you. I want to do it my way. But here's the thing. God wasn't satisfied with this picture for us. Because in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you notice he says, the way, the truth, the life. It's exclusive. He says, I am the way to reconciling your account with God. I'm the way to back to relationship with your creator. I'm the truth. Man, our world talks about truth but doesn't know anything about it. He says, I'm the life. I'm the place where real life is found. And we want that. Every one of us wants to be on the way, the truth, and the life. 
But sometimes we take the wrong bridge. Sometimes we try morality. If I could just be good enough. If I could just do enough good things. Then perhaps God would let me in. Or maybe if I could just be religious enough, if I go to church enough, if I say the right things, if I get if I get baptized as a baby, or if I'd go through these whatever ritual it is, if I just do it, if I'm memorizing the scripture, if I do all these things, if I could just earn it, if I just be religious enough, then I'll find the way, the truth, and the life. Or maybe it's just ourself. Like I don't need God, I don't need anything. I could just be me and I could just be happy with me. But none of it is enough. The only way, truth, and life is Jesus Christ. In John 5, 24, Jesus says this, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life. He does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Guys, you remember, let's just do a little bit of review. What was, what was Hebrews 9, 27? Judgment. What is Jesus' word saying? If you hear and believe, you don't have judgment. You don't have Romans 6, 23, death, but you have life. He's saying, hey, you must, who hears and believes? What must we hear? The gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, are the most exact, like, precise description of the gospel. For I delivered you of first importance, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. What we believe as Christians is this, is that every single one of us stands guilty before God because we've done sinful actions. But what Jesus did is that he took on the punishment of our sin where God poured out the wrath on sin in the person of Jesus on the cross so that because he's been raised in new life, defeated sin and death, we can now have life in his name, that we would be new creations. He says, hey, we have to hear this and we have to believe this. What does the belief look like? Well, Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us this. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it. It's rhetorical, all right? What's the difference between a head belief and a heart belief? A head belief is something you just believe to be true, like two plus two equals four, but has no standing on your life whatsoever. A heart belief is something that actually matters to you. To the source of who you are, you believe. See, God is not calling you to intellectually accept the truth about who he is. He's calling you to get into a relationship with him. He's calling you to follow him. He's not looking for you to check Christian on some ballot or you to vote some certain way or whatever it is. He's calling you into a relationship with him at a heart level, not at just an intellectual knowledge of who he is. Guys, think about that. The creator of the world wants a relationship with you. So the gospel is this, is that we have no righteousness, but Jesus does. And the ultimate proof of who he is is that he rose from the dead. See, lots of people have, grown, lots of people have claimed to be God or have claimed to be significant people or have significant truth, but they've all died. And guess what? They're all buried somewhere and they're still in a grave. But Jesus isn't. He isn't in a grave anymore, and we cannot ignore that. If we wouldn't have had the resurrection of Jesus, you wouldn't have to ignore it because it wouldn't matter. See, let's get back to the story. Verse 8. 
and they remembered his words. These women remembered their words and returned from the tomb. And they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna Mary of the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be idle tales and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went, went home marveling at what had happened. Now, when it says in here, idle tales, it means like they thought it was absolute nonsense. They're like, what are you talking about? What, what are you even talking about? That doesn't even make sense. Some of you may be feeling that way, too, about when you think about the resurrection of Christ. It's like, oh, that's a nice fairy tale. In fact, often I'll talk to people about it, and they'll say to me, Ernie, if you can prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead, then I'll believe in Jesus. And often I'll look back and I'll say this. You know what? I don't feel like the burden of proof falls on the Christian because there is really so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It's so overwhelming and convincing. I feel like the burden of proof actually falls on those that don't believe. Because you have to explain why there isn't a body in the tomb. And, and, and I want to take a minute to look at some of the evidence that we have just from looking at this story. And I want to share with you something, just seven, just seven things that I think are excellent proof to prove that Jesus was actually the Son of God and that he actually rose from the dead. The first one is this, all right? Women are the ones that discover the empty tomb. All right, stick with me. Some of you are like, What? I was like, okay, this happened 2,000 years ago. It's not right, but it's true. Women had no standing in society 2,000 years ago. They weren't even allowed to testify in court on their own behalf. Like, they wouldn't even accept the testimony of a woman in culture 2,000 years ago. So if you're going to fabricate a story about someone raising from the dead, the first person you would bring to light would not be a woman. You'd be like, why would you bring forth the most untrusted voice in that culture to speak about the thing that seems the most insane or crazy. You wouldn't fabricate a story that way. Secondly, the transformation of his followers. That before Jesus died, all right, before Jesus resurrected, his followers were cowards. Like they all scattered and ran away, all right? Like Peter was running from like a 14-year-old girl that says, hey, aren't you with that guy? And he runs away. They all scatter and leave. They're all complete cowards. But after they saw the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden, every single one of them is emboldened to share about who Jesus was and talk about who he was, even to the point of death. Even to the moment that they were killed in extraordinarily awful ways, never recanting. A, a third proof is this, worship changed within the church. See, before before Jesus resurrected, Jews worshiped on Saturday. They still do. But the moment that Jesus resurrected, worship began to happen on Sunday. Sabbath happened on Sunday. Now, if you've ever been to church, guys, you know how hard it is to even change, like, the carpet, okay? All right? Or, like, if you turn up the music, how crazy religious people get, right? I remember working at an older church, and we had a 45-minute meeting about the color of the T-shirt and had it for the mission trip because it always had to be that color. Could you imagine changing the day? But not only did it change the day, like, but, but that's not what you see. You don't see people arguing about it. Old and younger people immediately switched the day. And there's this humongous change. And it, what also changed about worship is who they worship. They used to worship Yahweh, God the Father, but now they begin worshiping 
Jesus, God the Son. The fourth proof is this. Jesus' family began to worship him as God. Could you imagine being James or Jude, the younger brothers of Jesus? He never does anything wrong. So you resent him. And then he gets in his 30s and he starts saying he's the son of God. In fact, through his life, like, you're like, no, you're not. Like, they thought he was, a large portion of his family thought he was absolutely crazy. In fact, when he went to go talk at his old town, no one respected him. But after the resurrection, all of them begin to worship Jesus, the Son of God. James and Jude write books in the Bible and become leaders in the church. You explain that to me. But not only did his family begin to worship him as God, but his enemies did. You heard of Saul? He became Paul. See, before Saul interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ, he said this, that he was so zealous to persecute the church that no one was more zealous than him, that he would travel from town to town, killing Christians, imprisoning them, doing anything he could to stomp it out. But then he encounters the risen Christ, and all of a sudden, he is the one who begins sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and writes a large portion of the New Testament and becomes a leader in the church. How does that transformation happen? Or here's another point. Number six, the church began to explode. If you take out the leader in the early years of a movement, often that movement's going to immediately die, at least slow in growth. But that's not what happened because 500 people saw the resurrected Christ and no matter what you did to them, whether you fed them to lions or tore them apart in front of crowds or killed them with gladiators, it didn't matter. It kept growing. Here's the seventh one. A body was never found. See, as I said earlier, for religious leaders, for important religious leaders, graves become shrines. You can go to Buddha's grave. You can go to Muhammad's grave. And you'll see it, the religious shrines that people will, will come before and they'll worship and they'll make a big deal. But we don't do that in Christianity. We don't even know where Jesus' tomb was. Why? Because it's not important. He left it. He's not there. And it begs the question, who, where is the body? And popular culture, popular culture has five theories about this. I want to share a quick two because I want to debunk them, because at face value, they seem to make a lot of sense, but they really don't. And the first one is this. It's very popular. It's called the theft theory one. It's that the disciples stole the body. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. When we look at Scripture, we see that the disciples didn't even expect him to raise from the dead. And at that moment, they all ran cowardously and were afraid. And what would have taken them, they would have had to do the this, they would have had to thought through a complex plan in a moment of complete distress. I don't know if something ever awful, like somebody ever die in your family, something ever awful happened, within two days you're going to think through a complex plan to fake that they're alive. Go steal the body then from trained Roman soldiers, which is another problem because his tomb was guided, guarded by Roman soldiers. And those soldiers, if you gave up your guard, the place that you were guarded, they killed you. You died. It's an us or them situation. So you have these people who are afraid of 14-year-old girls saying they're associated with Jesus or all of a sudden go storm the hill and take down some of those powerful, well-trained soldiers at, at, at the time. And let's just say they did do that. Let's just say that did happen. Just walk with me for a second. 
Why would every one of the disciples go through a horrific, torturous death and never recant? You realize that, right? All but one of them was murdered for their faith. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be confused with Jesus. See, people will die for a false religion, but people won't knowingly die for a false truth. It makes absolute no sense. And by the way, the one guy that did live, they tried to boil him alive in oil. When he didn't die, they sent him off to, to, to live in isolation on in an island for almost the remainder of his life. It makes absolutely no sense. That is a bigger leap of faith for me to believe that they faked that than actually Jesus rose from the dead because it intellectually does not match up. Here's the second theory, that his enemies stole his body. This one makes even less sense to me. This is a real theory you'll hear in school. His enemy, like, okay, let's just play that out. His enemies stole the body, and now they have it, and people are coming to follow Jesus and say that he rose from the dead. Why on earth would they not just parade his body through the street and be like, hey, he's, he's not alive, he's dead, here's his body, it's over, end of Christianity, period, done. The Romans and the Jews did not want people to follow Jesus. Why would they keep the ace of spades in their pocket? They could have trumped it and killed it right there, but they didn't. Here's a third, here's a third theory, wrong tomb, that the women, were, they went to the wrong tomb, that they were so upset, they were so distraught, they were so confused, they just went to the wrong tomb. So let's play that out too. Okay, so maybe they were, but that means Peter went to the wrong tomb. That means the angels went to the wrong tomb. That means the soldiers that were guarding the tomb were at the wrong tomb. That even means Joseph and Nicodemus who buried, buried Jesus in the tomb, in Joseph's tomb, went to the wrong tomb as well. That they all went to the wrong place. Like, you may misplace your keys, but you're not going to misplace the tomb. And why wouldn't the authorities have found it? Because they didn't go to the wrong tomb. All right, here's, here's one of my favorites, the swoon theory. Meaning that Jesus didn't really die, that he was swooned and he woke up and he walked out. Now, let's play this out, okay? This is why this is absolutely crazy, because Jesus barely made it to the cross alive. In fact, when Pilate finds out that Jesus is dead, he's shocked because he died so quickly. Usually it would take two days for somebody to die on the cross. Jesus died in a couple hours, okay? And, and he, it's because he barely showed up to that before because let's just walk through the things that happened. He shows up and he's beaten all night and then they take the cat of nine tails and they slash his back with it, which often after that would happen, it was supposed to kill a person, often would. Your, your organs and your ribs, I'm sorry for the children, are, are exposed. Like everything is exposed. Like you're gonna die from that. And then they bring him to the cross, and they, they nail him to the cross in which you suffocate to death. And just to make sure that he was dead, they took a spear, and they shoved it up his side, piercing his heart and his lungs, releasing water and then blood, which is a scientific proof of death post-mortem. He's dead. He's dead. And then they took him off. And then they wrapped him in 75 pounds of linen and put all the spices and all the stuff in it. And then they, they carried him to this, this, this tomb, and they put him in there, and then they put a giant rock in front of him. You see how ridiculous it's getting really quickly, right? All of a sudden, and then, and then they put soldiers in front of the tomb, and then all of a sudden, three days later, Jesus woke up, 
shook off all of this stuff that he's been tightly wound in like a mummy, all right, then moves this humongous rock, evades capture by the Romans as he moves the thing that they're guarding, and then a day later, he's running seven miles to Emmaus with the disciples, and nobody could recognize him because the last time they saw him, he looked like a beaten dog beyond any, like any way of even knowing who he was, and yet they're looking at this guy that doesn't look like he's been beaten at all. That is absolutely one of the silliest things I've ever heard. Like, just even at the end of that, where you walk seven miles, have you ever stubbed your toe and, like, tried to, like, go for a jog after you stub your toe? This guy walked seven miles to Emmaus from where he was with holes in his feet. And we're supposed to be like, oh, he just woke up. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Here's the fifth one that's popular that there was a mass hallucination. It's been reported there were 500 people saw Jesus. In fact, after 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, he says, hey, go talk to this person, this person, the 500 people that, he, that have seen him and will proclaim it. And, and they're saying these 500 people saw Jesus and had a hallucination. Now, scientifically and psychologically, there's a lot of problems here because hallucinations tend to be individualistic. They tend to be based off of individuals' past experiences, present circumstances, and future hopes. And, and based off the diversity of the people that Jesus revealed himself to over the period of time and the different backgrounds, present areas, and culture, it, it, is, it is absolutely statistically impossible that all of them would be saying succinctly the same thing that they were saying. But let's just say it did happen. You still have an empty tomb. So where does that leave us? It leaves us that we have every reason to believe that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. And if you don't believe that, the burden of proof is on you. And the empty tomb demands a response. And there is only one, there is only two appropriate responses to an empty tomb. The first one is what you see the women do. The women encounter the empty tomb and they immediately run to others to share the good news. The only appropriate response of a follower of Jesus is to proclaim the truth and goodness of God because it is so good you can't keep it to yourself. It is a monumental moment that should change everything about you. And the second response is this, is what Peter did, is to run to the tomb and discover for yourself. There's some of us in this room, hopefully a lot of us in this room right now, that God is doing business in your heart and you are seeing it truly as you've never seen it before. And you have to come to grips with the empty tomb. And here's like, yeah, Ernie, but what about Christianity? It does a lot of bad things or this. Forget all about whatever Christianity is. You need to figure out who Jesus is because if Jesus is the Son of God, then it has implications on your life and they're really great implications. If he's not, who cares? about what Christians do. Some of you need to run to the tomb this morning. Some of you right now, God is knocking on your heart and saying, hey, I'm real. This is real. I want you. And all you have to do is Romans 10, 9, and 10. Confess what your heart believes to be true. 
And some of you are like, okay, Ernie, you got my attention. Great. Here's my next step for you. Find certainty on where you stand there. And do it with somebody that knows the Bible and knows Jesus. You would never just open up the Bible. Like, to open up the Bible and just say, no, figure out. God can do that. But it's like this. It's like saying, hey, I want to learn to fly. I'm going to buy a manual, and I'm going to go get in a plane. You're going to die. But what you end up doing is you end up hiring somebody that knows how to fly that helps you as you go through the manual and helps you learn how to fly. What's my point? If you're searching and you're hearing this going, okay, maybe there's something to that. You need to grab the person that invited you or you need to fill out that connection card right there and say, hey, I want to figure out what does it mean, who Jesus is, and I need help discovering who it is. You'll never be pushed. You'll never be pressured. None of that stuff will ever happen. We just want to be along with you as you discover what you believe about God. And it's at your pace. It's an invitation to take advantage of it. Where are you going? Are you running to the the tomb or are you running away from it? Okay, let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for an opportunity to gather. Thank you so much that we get a chance to make much of you. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and that we would see you as you really are. And Lord, I, I pray that we would celebrate who you are. Thank you that you didn't stay in the tomb. Because if you were in the tomb, as Paul said, we would have no hope. This would all be a charade. This would all be a joke. This would all mean nothing. But you did. And you are king. And we make much of you in this moment. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.